Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good Sunday morning to you. Good morning to you, Scott. We have an interesting show today. You might want to share a little bit about it with our listeners. Absolutely. We have Bert Chesson and Paul Kingsford from Lyser's Footsteps with us this morning, who are giving us information about the Jewish community and the history of the Jewish community in Montana since the late 1800s. Well, Leisner's footsteps refers to a Jewish merchant who in 1861 walked from the West Coast to, to Montana to establish a, a uh, um, you know, a, a trading post uh, when gold was discovered in Montana. And uh, that's sort of the, I guess, is viewed as the beginning of uh, the Jewish community or the Jewish involvement in the history of uh, Montana. I'm looking forward to it, Arnie. I think it's going to be a lively conversation. As I had mentioned to you before, I I saw them at Destination Missoula that I'm a member of. They gave a presentation. Paul did. And uh, I was fascinated by the information they were sharing. Anyway. And they have a a display at Fort Missoula, uh, you know, sort of commemorating all this. You know, for our listeners, let me just share a couple of statistics um, before we begin the show. Back in 1860, there were only about 7 million people of Jewish belief in, in the whole world and less than 200,000 in the United States. And uh, that's out of a, a population of 31 million people that made up the United States in 1860. And the whole world at that point was only a little over a billion people. If we move forward to today, there's 8 billion people in the world. There are 333 million people in the United States, roughly. Um, There are about 5.8 million Jews, which is about 2%, 2.2% of the adult population. It's only 15 million in the whole world, and 84% of them live in two countries, Israel and the United States. So it's it's still a very small population of uh, Montana, for sure. It's only about 1,500 people of uh, Jewish heritage living in Montana. It's a very small part of the United States, and it is an infinitesimal part, 15 million of 8 billion people in the whole world. But it's fascinating because they've, they've played an important part in the, uh, in the history and the heritage of our state you know, and our country. And Absolutely. So it'll be interesting to hear from Bert and Paul today about the contribution that the uh, early Jewish immigrants to Montana have made. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I, you've been here for almost going on, what, 30 years? No, 25 25 years. 25 years. I've been here for eight years. We found each other. We're both of Jewish, you know, we were both born as Jews and practice as Jews. But what are the odds of that even? What are the odds of two people from a similar background finding each other in a town that's 100,000 people that are Jews? When there's only 1,500 in the whole state. Out of a million, the number very small number, and it's <laughs> right. The numbers keep on getting lower and lower. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're not at the you know usually population numbers grow, but because of the Holocaust, the numbers you know diminished. There were almost seventeen million Jews in nineteen thirty nine in the world, and after the World War Two, there were eleven million. Wow! So um, a staggering you know, that, that's. Staggering number, and it hasn't, you know, hasn't rebound back to its uh, height. Well, we'll talk with Bert and Paul all about that when we come back after these words. Back after this. As local Missoula... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are back with our guest, Paul Kingsford. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good morning, Arnie. Good yes, morning, you, Paul. Yes, thank you so much for allowing me to uh, be part of the show. It's very exciting. Well, we're anxious to hear what was the inspiration for your tackling this, uh, you know, present this historical research and presentation about the uh, the role of Jews in the uh, in, in the early days of uh, the state of Montana. What was well, the impetus for that? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because it, it, it really it started because of this anti-Semitic material that was being handed around here in Missoula. And, you know, it, it was just a few of us, a few, it was a few Jews just hanging around dinner and we were just talking about it. And we were just saying, what can we do about it? And Bert had this, you know, historical perspective about these uh, how Jews used to live here in Montana. And we thought it'd be a good idea to counter this, this narrative that we've been hearing that was being handed around uh, on paper and people on, stuck on people's car windshields and handed around campuses around Missoula. And basically the narrative we thought to combat that was to just tell these extraordinary Jewish stories and at first, we just thought we would just do these little 8 by 11 little printouts and just hand them out to friends and people we knew around town just to, to, just to, just to counter that story, that, this material that we've been seeing. And it, it grew from there because what happened was that the interest, as, as Bert kept on feeding me more and more of this material, it, it, we started getting deeper and deeper into these stories that were just extraordinary. And then we, we were invited into other people who had material in their attics. And as we started digging around in the attics, then we started finding even more, you know, incredible stories that just made it richer and richer. And what Bert thought he had was something that was interesting. But in the end, I think these stories of these Jews what really stand out. They weren't just interesting people from Missoula. They were interesting people on the world stage. They made incredible impacts for, for all of humanity. And, it, and then this connection with these Jews, with these Native Americans... Uh, these Salish people that were living here. Because if you're, if you're arriving here and all it is is just the dirt, you know, it's just trees and hills and animals, and, and you want to start a business, <laughs> the only people around were Native Americans. And, and, mm -hmm. and so that was the connection. That's why there was all these early photographs of all these Native Americans woven into these family books. So you and I'm sorry, I'm lost here, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you and Bert are doing this avocationally, Paul. What do you do, you know, work wise, and what what does Bert do when he's not uh, working on this, you know, well, passion well, project? That's just it. You see, I mean, I I I, I used to be in the advertising business. I was a, a an advertising creative director in 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 London and Boston and Chicago, and here in this town, just. You know, just for just to make a little bit of extra money, I've been helping other companies uh, do branding and marketing. But but this 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 museum stuff that I'm doing now has literally taken over. It's mm -hmm. a full time business for me. And Bert and I have actually started our, our non profit, and we've called it Bare Bones Historians. That's what we call ourselves. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, it's me and Bert. You can think and of Bert's background is well. 
Bird's a typical museum at Mazulian. He, he, he has been, I think, everything in this town. Um, he is, he, he, he's an all-knowledgeable person when it comes to history. You can ask him anything, and he, he knows the answer to it. Um, he's a native and, Missoulian. He's a native Montanan and Missoulian. Yes, yeah. And, and what we do it. And Ar- right, he's Jewish, and Arnie and I, and Arnie figured this out. What, Arnie, there's 150 Jews in Missoula currently? Well, there's about 1,500, less than 1,500 in the in whole Montana. state out of over a million people. And uh, uh, so it's a very small part of the population, but it's been here since the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the westernization of Missoula. As, uh, you know, as Paul just mentioned, um, the first people coming in here doing commerce were doing it with uh, the Native American population here. Right, right, right. right. That's and right. then, and then, of course, right? Wasn't it 1861 when the gold rush hit Montana? It was 18, yeah, it was about 1862, 1863 when when the gold rush started, and and, that, and that's this leads into where we're at at the moment, which is this: we're doing this new story around the gold rush, Jews of the gold rush, and uh, it's funny when it comes to Missoula. Uh, historians will tell you that Missoula isn't really connected to the, the gold story, but it is. The newspaper here was established because of the gold uh, in this region. Uh, it, you, you know, and, uh, and and most of the Jews that came out here, they came out because of gold. They came out to mine the gold miners. And selling their wares. In, in those early days in the 1860s, 1867 and 8, 9, people didn't have money in their pockets. They traded with with gold, gold dust. Right. If you had it, you know, it's extraordinary. Uh, you know, and it, and, it, and it took hold and it grew. And I think, wasn't it by about 1880 that... Uh, even in, in Butte, Montana, there was uh, three Jewish congregations. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, it was Hel- Helena's uh, Helena as an older um, synagogue temple there, and it's still standing today. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, right? Yeah. And um, which, which was completed in 1891. So this is this is all in the early days. And there was obviously a thriving Jewish community in Helena, you know, back over 130 130 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's extraordinary. each, Each of these gold towns throughout Montana had a small Jewish community with inside each one of them. And each of them conducted their own kind of uh, services uh, or did what they could. And, uh, it, you know, it, see, seeing um, these, these buildings today in Butte um, are just testaments to that hard work, what only a few, few Jews actually made possible. The population of of Jews in that time was very small in those towns. Mm -hmm. It must have been. Well, those towns were very small until, uh, you know, until after the gold rush really took hold. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, copper and other metals were found in Butte. And we all know the Butte stories. You know, know, they had uh, the largest opera house uh, west of the Mississippi uh, until San Francisco at one point. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You went from uh, from finding gold, then it became silver. Uh, the first mayor of uh, of Butte was a uh, was a Jew, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was his wife that um, that actually uh, owned uh, a mine out there, which turned out to be the largest one of the largest silver mines in the entire country. Uh, she became the, the couple became very wealthy off that. And I, I think by 
I think it was like eight, by 1890, 1897, uh, that mine made them about a million dollars at that time. A million dollars at that time was a lot of money. <laughs> Absolutely. What's interesting about the stories about Montana is that at the, at the turn of the last century, Montana, in a way, was a much more diverse state than it is now because there was, you know, this thriving Jewish community, the Chinese and African-American community was larger because they came here to work on the railroad and the mines. And, you know, and, and of course, because of mining and rail, there were, uh, you know, strong communities from Eastern Europe and Croatia, Serbia, um, that were all part of the state. And that's that sort of has filtered out over over that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, all all these different communities, they, 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 you know, they, there were Germans, Jews, there was Poles, there were all these different languages. And they, each of them, a lot of them had their own newspapers. The Germans had their own publications. Jews had their own publications. Um, and you think that was, that was kind of important to this story during the gold rush. Remember, it was pushed because of the war. It right. Was, you know, and you've got that happening. So you've got soldiers coming up, Civil War soldiers that were coming up in these different towns. And um, you've got that rich mixture in there. Then you've got all these other languages all spoken at the same time. It, it, it was it was it was a madhouse. It was it must have been absolutely crazy. And what makes it interesting is that you've got these Jews that were out there at the time, and they were establishing law in these towns. They were some of them were creating the vigilantes mm-hmm. uh, in Virginia City. Paul, give us give give us a little background because I'm fascinated not just by the work you're doing by by you. You, you said that you moved here from the United Kingdom. Where were you born in the UK? How did you get involved in the advertising industry? Uh, what, what accounts did you work on and things that we might know more about you? Because I think it gives a full picture on who you are is, is only more attractive to our audience. <laughs> well, my, yeah, I, I, I grew up in a town called Stockport. It's just about, it's about nine miles out of Manchester. Uh, but if you're an Englishman, nine miles is a long way. <laughs> <laughs> and each town has its own unique personality. So Stockport's actually very different to Manchester. And from a historical perspective, it's very, it, it's where you used to send all your furs in America to England, where we would make them into hats. Okay. <laughs> And uh, it was once the largest copper, uh, sorry, it was once the largest, you know, cotton industrial town in the world at the time. So it's a great big industrial little town. And uh, that's where I grew up. And How did you get involved involved in the advertising industry? Well, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I was, I was just a, a, a typical kid at school that could do, I was pretty good at drawing. I was attracted by design. So I went to college and learned design. And then, and then, um, it just so happens at that particular college, I was just extraordinarily fortunate enough to meet a group of individuals that went to some of the best advertising agencies in the country. And they were my, they were my tutors. <laughs> wow. And, what what yeah. time period was this, Paul? This is like, uh, this is uh, nineteen. This is nineteen seventies, nineteen seventy five, nineteen seventy four. So I, ha- I have to ask you: were, were you a avid watcher of Mad Men on TV, and what did you think of it? If you were, it's actually quite accurate. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can't really speak for, to America in those early days because I was in London, but I could tell you it was like that and worse. I mean, alcohol. And well, well, they invented the two martini lunch. Remember that? Well, that's what martini lunch. Well, I could tell you, do you know what it was? This is the funny thing was we'd break at 12 and we wouldn't get back until three o'clock. <laughs> and we'd come back absolutely blotted. 
And we'd have to do presentations to them, you know. Yeah. That, that was that was the business. What people don't know is that we worked incredibly long hours and the pressure to come up with material is incredibly stressful. So, what are, what are some of the accounts you worked on? Well, in America, I'm probably uh, well known for having worked and created, helped create the brand for Stanley Tools and Black and Decker and all that kind of stuff. Wow. That's good. Uh, but, you know, some of the larger obscure clients are like uh, Deloitte and Touche, uh, Lockheed Martin, um, pretty much everything except for women's hygiene products is the way of putting it. So, you know, Anna has a bush. You know, it, all that kind of stuff. Um, food products. Um, yeah. And what was the name of the uh, the chair, Sir uh, the Saatchi? Um, so, the, yeah. Saatchi and Saatchi? Yes. The, Morris the, Saatchi? What was he like? Um, you know... The, when I first got a job there, I was sat down at this desk and I was given a piece of paper and documents saying, okay, do this. And then this old guy came next to me. Well, I thought at that time he was an old guy too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he sat next to me and said, what are you working on? And I didn't know who he was. And, uh, and I, all I had on, on my desk, because I, I couldn't figure out what to do. It was just, I was just a kid then. And they had all these little scribbles and little doodles. And he just pointed to one of the doodles and just said, hey, that's a great idea. It turned out what I was doing was uh, I was I was um, working on insurance because I'm the new guy, so they gave me the boring thing to do. <laughs> so I was coming up with uh, ideas, to TV, TV and print uh, ideas for this new insurance company. Uh, and I was doing these little coituses and, uh, and, and things. And that, that turned out to be the the image and the, and the idea behind the, the advertising campaign that was built up, that was done at that time. And was that, did you find out. did you find working in the, in the business at that particular point in time, where media was in many ways more powerful than it is today, because you had you know four or five magazines, you know, the predominant magazines, you had. You didn't have, uh, you know, satellite TV. You had four, five, six TV channels. You had a few radio channels, you know, and so the message was very easy to disseminate in a way because you didn't have to, you know, do a buy across 500 different sources. Did you find that challenging but also pressurizing at the same time? Oh, no, it was easier. Um, it was so much easier. It's funny because in England, we only we had BBC One, BBC Two, right, and then ITV and Channel Three and Channel Four or Five channels. But there was hardly anything. And then we had, you know, a few magazines. Um, it, it 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 made it so at the time you were only thinking about. You know, some outdoor material, some print, and TV. Right. That was it. Well, here in the 70s, you had basically the, the big four were, you know, Life, Look, t Time, and Newsweek. Yeah. Those were, yeah. those were the four that, you, you know, that you advertised in. And, you know, and the right. TV stations were right. basically NBC, CBS, and ABC. Yeah. Oh, and let's not forget radio. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not going to leave radio out. But, but, uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, the high – the high listenership, you know, uh, you know, a, a TV network went across the entire country. Yeah. So, well, let's you know. well, and 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 a way of looking at what you're working on now, Paul, with trying to create a brand and disseminate the information about the brand and educate Montanans about the history of Jews and and kind of trying to kind of uh, create a different narrative that tries to combat anti-Semitism, is this a, this is, sounds like it's also a very a pressurized project in the sense or a difficult project because you have a lot of challenges in trying to communicate clearly that message and educate folks. You know, talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So, so actually the challenges here are probably no different than, say, you know, a soap commercial. 
it, 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 I know it's so different, but in many ways, uh, how I would go about working on a, a new, pro, a new soap product and marketing that is probably very similar to the way I, I attack any of these things. You see, the best way to do any advertising, believe it or not, to, despite what people might think, is, is through truth. If you can, if you can hone it down to a very simple message, make it very clear and just tell people what they're about and make, and make it very truthful, it'll have far more impact and cut through all the clutter. And that's what I'm, all I'm doing here is I'm, I'm digging deep and trying to get to the truth of these individuals and then make it interesting and make it unique. By in in your in your research, Paul, did you find that back in the eighteen you know sixties, seventies, eighties, in the early days, was there a anti-Semitic sentiment then as well? You know, it's funny. I, I it, all this research, and I, I, I've been covering Montana. I've covered Montana, South Dakota, Colorado, practically at nothing. I mean, yeah. very, very, very little. You know, there's a few run-ins, you know, there's a few shootouts, but they don't seem as though they're anti-Semitic, really. Um, it, I, 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 I think it's partly because of what you were saying earlier. It was such a hodgepodge of people in these communities. Right, that it was hard to, you wanted, a, you, you, wanted a, you know, strength and unity instead of diversity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scott, back in back in the uh, early pioneer days um, of of you know Jewish pioneers, seventeen of twenty of Helena's dry goods stores were owned by Jews. Twenty percent of uh, of Helena's board of trade was Jewish, and uh, <laughs> you know you know the many of the first citizens of the state when Montana became a state were were uh, were, were Jewish settlers. Yeah, and it's just that, that it's so true when, when you go through Butte. I was taken on a tour uh, through there just recently, and they were pointing at all the buildings, and they were saying so many of these, the majority of them were owned by Jews at the time. And, and that, that brings up a very interesting point, um, because the, the, there were periods after the gold started to play out when these st- towns started to lose population. And it, it, the, the, Jewish, the Jews there um, made an effort to try and hold these communities together and uh, started making appeals to, uh, to people in New York and in Europe, saying, come to, come to Helena, come to, to Butte, because it's a great, you know, there's lots of work and there's, it's a rich way of life, a great way of living out here. And the, the, I, just, uh, these simple sheets that I found, um, I, I have to find, put them in my exhibit in some way, but just, just extraordinary, you know. Um, amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing. So are you, what, what are the plans now for the project? I know you're, you're doing an installation at the library, at the new downtown library in Missoula. Um, but you're also looking for other hosts for different educational installations here in the city, but also uh, outside of Missoula, throughout the state. What's the scope of the project? Well, the scope of this project, we're, we're, we have an exhibit now uh, of, we've pretty much covered Jews in Montana. When I say that, what it means is I have about 20 panels. Each panel is the size of a door. And each one focuses on an individual that has a, just an extraordinary story to them. And each of them are all connected to that early days of the gold rush. So pretty much everyone I'm focused on came out with all they had was a rucksack and a pickaxe or whatever, and they came looking for gold, and they ended up becoming the leaders, the mayors, the sheriffs, the school teachers, 
of of all of, of these regions around, around Montana and around Colorado and around South Dakota and so on. Um, and that, that's what I, that's what I have right now. Um, behind those twenty panels, there's another twenty panels I'm working on. <laughs> Other stories, and they're not just panels with stories that you can read because that'd be kind of overwhelming. But, but I've also I'm doing recording. So if you bring your cell phone in, you can scan these, and you'll be able to listen to a voice over in the background go into a little bit more detail about who these people were. And uh, it adds another level of richness to the to the exhibit. Have you been collaborating at all with the uh, Jewish Museum of the American West? I've spoken to them. Yeah, I, I have. And uh, it gets a little overwhelming after a while. I, 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 I learned that I need to cut that down because... I mean, speaking to too many, and never they just feed me with too much information. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a ton of information. I mean, they've done a lot of a, you know, the similar kind of of uh, you know research and and are focused on different you know individuals, you know, in, not only in Montana but in the entire West, and and uh, you know, you could you could spend a long, long time going through all of that. I mean, they've kind of documented every single, you know, it looks like almost every single person. That, uh, that of any of any position, prominence, or uh, visibility. Yeah. You, in your research, did you have you found any uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, essentially uh, um, outlaws? Were there any Jewish outlaws in the in the territory? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. If, even even the outlaws probably did. So, so many of them probably didn't think of themselves as outlaws. They, they'd probably right. think of themselves on the outskirts of, you know, getting away with, with certain things. Uh, th- th- there, were, there, were, there were lots of colorful characters out there. Uh, let's see if I can find this one guy in here. Hey, Scott, uh, there, there was a, a fellow who started uh, a... a Newspaper in Montana back in the early days uh-huh. in Butte. His name was A. Sh- A. Sherman. A- are you kidding? A, rela- a relative. Spelled slightly different. S. H. E. U. R. M. A. N. But his name was. He was a. He was a newspaper man and theater advertiser in Butte, Montana. Amazing. That's wow. great. It could be a yeah. long lost relative. Yeah. It could be. You never know. We always marvel at what brought us all out here, Paul. Like, what brought us here to Missoula? Because obviously none of us are from here. What brought you to Montana and to Missoula? (laughs) You know, that's kind of funny. Uh, My wife and I, we came out here um, uh, using a train from Chicago. And uh, it was that one that went right through North Dakota, through Glacier Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was hilarious because if you, at that time, if you stepped outside the train, it was forty below zero. Hmm. The scenery, and as soon as I got to the to the mountains, and especially to Glacier Park, it just got me. I just thought this was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And and my wife then suggested, you know, what if we live here? And uh, I was between jobs at the time in Chicago and. And uh, we, we somehow we, we came out here and uh, decided we'll make a go of it, and it ended up uh, in Missoula. That's fantastic. What year was that? That was, according to my wife, <laughs> it, it was around about uh, ni- uh, 1993, I believe. Okay. So you've been here for almost 20 years. Well, no, I, we, we were here for about four years. And then um, I, I, I was called back to uh, to the East Coast and uh, went back into working for big advertising agencies out there. And uh, and then we, we did that for about 10 years. And uh, then, then we came back to, to, to Missoula. And then we were drawn back to Missoula because both my kids – went to the university here, my son and my daughter, and both of them had the audacity to get married 
and have uh, and now I've got six grandchildren here in Missoula. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's wonderful. So this, so this is it for you. Oh, this you're is not it. allowed to leave. <laughs> I'm here for the long term now. Yeah, yeah, this is exciting for me. So, but, Paul, is there an, is there by the way is there a way that our audience could tap into some of the information you're you're creating for this project? Is there a Facebook page? Is there a website? There's a website. So it's barebones.historians.org. So it's bear as in B-E-A-R, bones, barebones.historians.org. And there on that, on that site, you'll be able to see the most famous Jews uh, of, of, um, of Missoula. Uh, we will be adding this white, this greater story at some later point. And inside this piece, you'll see the stories of, of, uh, of the, these Native Americans, these Salish warriors, uh, which we found in an attic. These photographs. Wow. And, uh, and, um, nobody had ever seen these photographs before. And, uh, we've been working with the Salish, uh, um, on the Flathead Indian Reservation to help us identify who these people were. And uh, what we, because when we first saw these these images, we we didn't know who they were. And it turns out that each of the images that that were in these photographs were as, as remarkable as any of the Jews that we had. Um, for instance, um, if you ever go to Washington D.C. and uh, you ever go to the museum there, there's a recording of a of a Native American telling a story of the great bear and it's the most famous uh, recording they have in the museum. Hmm. And it's uh, of this uh, Native American like we have. So, so what are your and Bert's future plans? What, what unfolds over the next year, two years, three years as this project uh, takes root? Well, what makes it particularly exciting now is that we, we've create, we're creating a traveling museum exhibit. But it's a little bit bigger and a little bit more extensive than what people have done in the past. And uh, we hope to that there is uh, museums in, in Deadwood that are that this is going to go to. This will be in there, no doubt about it. And uh, uh, one of the great reasons for that is we have so many Jews that were in Deadwood at the time. And there's some of the stories from there that we've kind of blown up. And there's such a fantastic interest there uh, for uh, for that. Um, and we'll probably appear there first. Ironic, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and and we, we, we certainly will do uh, this exhibit here in Missoula. We just haven't found a location for it just yet. Um, and, and is there an appetite, you know, in the larger Jewish population, Carters in, in the U.S., like in, you know, New York, Boston, Philly, D.C., or oh my gosh, L.A. Is there such a... Is, there are people in New York City just screaming for this. We yeah. could put it up there tomorrow. We literally could. Um, it, 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 there, there's more of a demand for this kind of thing in the big cities around, around the country than there is out here, which is kind of ironic. Yeah. Well, they just think... I mean, I still have people today who, you know, who say to me, you know, I was originally born and reared in New York, and I'll talk to somebody from New York that, that uh, you know, has lived on the East Coast most of their life, and they'll say, you know, so is there anything to do in Montana? I mean, you know, what do you do? They have this vision out here that, you know, there's nothing here, and there's no history to it, you know, at all. They know about Custer's Last Stand and the national parks and that there's – there were Native American tribes here, and that's it. That That's their knowledge. And Yellowstone on TV with, you know, Kevin Costner. So they know that. But outside of that, they don't, you know, and maybe River runs through it. That's their whole perspective on the American West. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, people know a few things. They know the Battle of Little Bighorn. They know of Custer and things like that. But what they don't know is how that little story, well, it's a big story, but how that narrative, how how that story uh, of, fits into this gold rush story. Mm-hmm. The Black Girls, Deadwood, 
the Sioux. How the, but how those people were connected into the story that I'm telling here. Mm-hmm. Those Jews were connected to this. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, Saul Star, one of the famous characters and a Jew of Deadwood, on his way to on his way to Deadwood, uh, moving from Helena, was attacked by Sioux three times, and the Sioux that were attacking him had just had just come from the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Hmm. And he had to defend himself against that. And he did. And he did and survived and was known after that as, uh, as, the, as the Indian fighter. Wow. The, uh, these, are, these are great stories. So you think, Scott? I think it's phenomenal. I mean, I think it's just that who, who would have known it? Who would have thought right. it? It's kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. The only, the only story I saw about Jews going west was, uh, you know, was the one with uh, Harrison Ford and, uh, um, <laughs> you know, what's his, what's his name? Um, um, I'm blocking on his name, but, you know, the one about the rabbi heading west. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just another story here is uh, it's a fellow called Ben Ezekiel. And uh, he, he moved out to, uh, to Virginia City. Well, the gold camps around Virginia City. Um, when, when, when there were so few people in, in that area at the time, the population in Montana was probably about about 200, 300 white guys. So he comes out, he hears about the gold rush, comes out, and uh, and starts a, a, a gold sluice. He starts trying to extract gold out of the side of a, a mountain using the wood he, he, he made out of uh, bits from the right. cart that he, he brought over with him. He made enough gold to start a business in town. But he became the deputy sheriff in town. Hmm. But he also became a vigilante because of the crime at the time. See, what was happening, people were finding gold. Right. And then they had to take their bags of gold back to wherever and turn it into cash. But they were being attacked by bandits or they would go on a stage and then the guys that were supposed to be protecting them on the stagecoach were indeed robbing them. (laughs) (laughs) So Ben was part of this vigilante group and um, he he apparently went after and hanged all these these bad guys. I think one of them was called, um, what was his name? Well, they were called road agents at the time. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and then and, and he, the bad guy was Sheriff Plummer. He was supposed to be a sheriff, but of course he, he was the guy that was taking all the gold. Right. And he was hanged by Ben Ezekiel. Wow. There's a TV series in this. By the way, the movie I was thinking of was Frisco Kid, and it was Gene Hackman. Uh, no, excuse me. It was Gene Wilder who played, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> played the rabbi with uh, along with uh, Harrison <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, let's do this, Arnie. Our guest is Paul Kingsford. He is involved in Leiser's um, steps and Leiser's footstep, footstep. I'm sorry, and he is he and his partner Burke Chasen are doing a whole history of Jews in Montana, dating back to the late or the mid to late 1800s. Anyway, when we come back, we will be joined again by our guest Paul Kingsford. Back after this, who's your daddy? Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's normal to have diarrhea and stomach pains. Sometimes, but not as often as you do. I've got this under control. No, you don't. 
It's time to let that voice inside your head be heard. Urgent diarrhea and chronic stomach pain can be signs of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation can help you learn more and even find a specialist. Don't keep your symptoms to yourself. Get help at SpillYourGuts.org. Arnie, we are joined again by Paul Kingsford. Paul, Arnie. Paul, tell us again how we can find you, where the exhibit's going to be, and... uh, you know, anything else that you want to add to embellish on this story? Well, yeah, what's important um, is the, the the stories that we have around these famous Jews, uh, this uh, Lesnar's Footsteps exhibit, um, is, is, going, is scheduled to, to appear at the library here in Missoula in September. But, and we have the exhibit, it's totally finished, it's all framed, it looks beautiful. But we have a bit of a curveball because the museum didn't want us to put anything on the walls. And we had to put the, we have to now build a freestanding exhibit that will go down the corridor on the top floor. It's, Mm -hmm. it should look beautiful, but there are costs involved in that. And, and, uh, we're hoping that the public and uh, other sources can help, uh, help us with that endeavor to put this together. Um, I don't think it's going to be that particularly expensive, but nonetheless, it's more money that me and Bert have at the moment. So um, how do we reach out to people who want to help reach out to you? You can go to my website at barebonesshistorians.org, and there you'll be uh, directed at how to, how to donate and just uh, and, you know give us a dollar or $5. Anything will help and pay, help pay for this. Because uh, I think I believe it's really important for people to see this. I think I think Scott and I agree. We absolutely agree, Paul. We appreciate your time and your generosity of your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. So yeah, and 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 that's where this this exhibit will go in. And then the other exhibit. Um, once we put that together, uh, like I said, it's going to go into. Uh, it will appear in Deadwood first. But we're looking for another venue uh, uh, here, here in here in Missoula. Hopefully, um, it's rather large. Uh, we've been working really well with the people at the Fort, um, and I think they'll probably collaborate and provide us, hopefully, with a space to do that. But because of the size of it, it, it creates its own problems. I mean, we, we, the exhibit's going to be so big we could fill the museum. Sure. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a good thing. And it's also a tough thing to try and sell to people. Um, well, if anybody in our listening audience has any ideas or would like to step up and help us and help Paul and help Bert, read, you know how to reach him. His website again is barebones dot, um, well, repeat it. Barebones, for yeah. So org. BareBonesHistorians.org, or you could reach out, out to Arnie and I individually or at the station here. And anyway, Paul, we appreciate your time today. No, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. My one piece of advice at the end of the show for where you might look is at the airport. The new terminal is going to open up February uh, uh, 22nd, 2022, and they'll have that old building there that isn't going to be fully occupied. That is a great idea. What a tremendously great idea. I'd love that. I even a, broken, that. Even a yeah. broken clock is right twice <laughs> a day. How about that, Paul? <laughs> if any of our friends from the airport are listening, you know, how, right, you know how to get in touch with us. Anyway, Paul, thanks again. Arnie, I will see you next week. See you next week, Scott.
the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.